Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans, featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Big Conversations Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans along with Mr. Randy Florence. Your sidekick, and You're, I'm happy to be here look, again. Look, I'm Who am I today? I'm, you, you say that like it's a bad thing, but I want to remind you that after Johnny Carson retired, Ed McMahon went on to a long and illustrious career on Star Search. So I'm going to start if you a Star are Search. The Ed McMahon, I'm not saying you are. Oh. I mean, I say, I say that to other people, but I wouldn't say it to you. That if you are the Ed McMahon of this podcast, that's a good thing. I'm really more of a Tommy Newsom. <laughs> oh. Kind of guy. I've got that kind of personality. Doc, Doc is not here. Yeah. Tommy Newsom's with the band. So I, I, I want to introduce our guest who probably has no clue what any of those names that we no. just mentioned. No. Who they are or what they mean. You ever heard of? You introduce them, then we'll quiz him. Go ahead. I do want to introduce everybody today to our guest, Brian Blue Sky from the Desert Sun. Brian, thanks for being on here. Thank you for having me. Brian and I have known each other for a few years, and um, we did. We met the first time at a session of the storytellers for the Desert Sun, where we got up and talked about our story. Everything I know about Brian, I learned from that video. So uh, if I end up repeating a bunch of stuff, I apologize. Oh, no worries. Uh, uh, Brian, you joined the Desert Sun immediately following, within two weeks of the departure of Bruce Fessier, a... Uh, well, I think Bruce would be pretty honest about the fact that you followed a legend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> An institution, as a matter of fact. Yeah. A household name. I think he's a fixture at the Desert Sun still. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't figured out not to show up every show day up. again? Yeah, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, I, I, we'll get into your background a little bit, but you, you, you followed somebody who from day one had written about culture and entertainment in this market and one day you're taking over for him. What was that like? Yeah, I didn't know that he was retiring. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't really kept private. It was out there for a while. And when I talked to him, I think it was right after the Desert Sun announced, like formally announced that he was leaving. And then he was putting up social media posts. I went to go interview him for CV Independent. And when I was interviewing him for CV Independent, I asked him, I said, who's replacing you? And he said, no, no one. Um, do you want the job? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I want the job. <laughs> and that I, was pretty fortuitous. Yeah. I mean, it, it, he got to handpick his successor. Um, a couple people kind of mentioned that to me. It's like, wow, it's like Bruce got to pick, pick his successor, and I'm proud to be his successor. <laughs> wow. That, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So how long were you working with the CV Independent before stepping um, aboard the Desert Sun? I want to say it was about six years, six or seven years. Okay, so that's a good long run. You oh, got yeah. to know the valley pretty well. Yeah, um, that that's another interesting story. <laughs> um, when I joined CV Independent, they had just put out the first print issue, and I had no idea what I was going to do there. Um, you know, Jimmy hired me to do a couple articles, and then two weeks after I turned in my first one, he's sending me to Coachella because the writer that he was bringing in from Tucson didn't show up. <laughs> So I went to my first Coachella while working as CV Independent, and I had no idea what I was getting into. And I walked on the site for the first time, and, you know, I'd been a stagecoach before. And seeing Coachella after watching it on the live stream for so many years and stepping onto that property with all the people there in the 5 o'clock hour when you just stand somewhere and you watch the crossfade of the crowds when one stage ends and another stage ends and they're all just walking like that, that... Every year I kind of find a spot around that time when the sun's going down and watch the crowd just kind of cross into each other. You kind of established um, a method of covering Coachella your yeah. very first time that they hadn't seen before. I, I, it was like you were everywhere all at once. Right, and that was kind of a challenge because I would run from one stage to another. <laughs> I would just take a schedule and be like, okay, well, that one ends at 535, so I can definitely go to this one and run over there. But it was that first year was so crazy, just running back and forth between stages. Well, and plus they're always on schedule; they never run late. So it's that's a that's yeah. We'll, we'll talk about with. Frank Ocean later. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, the the weekend, uh, first weekend of Coachella, you're covering it. Mm -hmm. This has got to feel a long way away from a cubicle 
at a bank calling center. Yeah. Which is really kind of your first job, right? Well, it was one of my many, um, many jobs, and I, that was in Cleveland, Ohio. And I really wanted to stay at that job because it paid well. We got bonuses, and I lived in a luxury apartment building in Ohio with a friend and a couple more friends. And it was fun, but, you know, when they announced that you have one year to figure out what you're going to do because we're going to lay you off, it's like, well, I'm going to California. And I was a little sad and bitter about leaving Cleveland, but it was time to go because there was just nothing left there. And I had to get out. I knew that I was going to have to get out. But a lot Cal- of people are sad and bitter about having to go to Cleveland. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> His was the opposite situation. Yeah. But I kind of thought I would go to Detroit. Um, you know, I, I was going back and forth to Detroit here and there on the weekends. But and you I, grew up in Ohio, so yeah. that was your wheelhouse, the, the Midwest, those areas. Were, so Yeah. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I kind of miss the Midwest, but not really. Um <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten old enough where the memories are good. The memories yeah. are good. The uh, the the lifestyle's good, but I just don't want the weather, and I just don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but yeah, I mean, when I came to California, it was like, okay, well, I'm kind of bitter and mad about having to leave Cleveland under the circumstance, but I was in California. I mean, it was kind of a dream come true, and I thought, okay, I'll work part time, and you know, and I kind of went through the motions for a little while. I worked in retail here. And then when the CB Independent opportunity came up, I mean, that I've been busy ever since. It's like I've never stopped. So growing up, was, was writing and music something that you were always interested in? Was there ever a dream that this is the direction my career is going to head? Well, I, you know, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of magazines about music. I went to concerts a lot, but... You know, my grandfather was a retired physician and was always concerned about, how are you going to make a living? I mean, I was not really a good student, and, you know, I had certain talents that my grandfather saw as, that's not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) And he would always ask me, why do you write in a notebook all the time? And I was like, it's poetry. And it's like, that's nonsense. And... You know, people would tell me, like, you can't make money as a poet. And I'm like, I'm not trying to make money as a poet. This is just something that I'm... about. Yeah, so... I don't think anybody tries to make money as a poet. No. No one goes into poetry thinking, this is the cash cow. Exactly. (laughs) And even if you're a rich poet, you're behind on your rent. I mean, just take a look at some of the famous ones in recent times. You know, you read about certain poets being... a lot of suicides. Yeah. (laughs) Evictions or poverty or something like that. That's the quote of the podcast i think for all time thus far even if you're a rich poet you're behind on your rent Damn, that was that was my dream too. that is that is poetry in and of itself should Brian. i say I like a that. famous poet you're behind on your rent <laughs> <laughs> maybe rich poet is like here we gave you twenty thousand dollars as an advance don't spend it all in one don't spot squander it <laughs> so you like to write yeah yeah but you did did you know why or was it? Did just you write for the school newspaper? Or did no, no, no. Um, so when you were when you were hired at the CV Independent, that was your first like legit writing gig. Yeah, and you know, zines were kind of an interest too because um, I went to school with this guy named Joe Beal, or he lived in my hometown. He was a little bit older than me, and Joe was really famous for being the guy that showed up at certain things and you know underground events and. He would bring a box with him, and it was zines. And I'd never even seen a zine or knew what it was, and he sold me my first ever zine. So and I describe would, that. A zine is an independent kind of newsletter thing. Um, people it's short for magazine. That's where they <laughs> yeah. got it from, Randy. Oh, I always called them mags. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's kind of an underground newsletter in a way. Um, there's all kinds of different ones. People draw things inside of them. They'll put in their own photos. They'll make collages in them. And, you know, some of them are artistic. Some of them are political. Some of them are promoting a certain underground lifestyle. In my case, I had no idea what I was buying. And just when I went through it, I'm like, what am I reading? <laughs> what, what did you get? It, it was just like a mishmash of all this, like, political stuff, riding bikes, being a vegan, you know, all this other. And it was like the original Mother Earth magazine. Yeah. Really subversive <laughs> stuff, vegan. And they're my traded goodness. underground. And, you know, it, these people will send them to people that, you know, it, it's either they're traded or they're accumulated yeah. by people that sell them. 
and you buy them and you read them and it's just like, what is this? This is so weird. And, you know, I had no idea what I was buying. This is like the original NFTs. Yeah. You know, just trading them, huh? Yeah. yeah. But Joe went on to form uh, Microcosm Publishing in Portland, Oregon. And he's one of the top independent publishing people for books. And some of the books that he's published are pretty profound. So Joe was kind of my intro into zines, and I didn't know that you could actually do something like that. And I did write for a Zen Buddhist zine that was being sent to prisons. Um, I did an interview for one. Well, you have a captive audience. Yeah, that was a long time ago. (laughs) But yeah, that that was kind of a... But ever since that one time, I think it was the early 2000s, I'd never, like, written a news piece or anything like that. And the first news piece that I wrote for CV Independent was on Alex Harrington, who at the time was not a well-known DJ in the local area, but has now become the resident DJ at one of the hotels in Palm Springs and has a pretty good following locally. And Alex and I have known each other for going on 20 years now. I mean, I've known that guy for a long time, wow. so, and I knew that he was doing it, and it, he was kind of transitioning from certain interests, but, you know, I knew that he was a musician. I used to work with him at Borders Books and Music, and then when I heard he was a DJ, I'm like, oh, I got to hear the story behind this, and I knew he was taking it seriously, because when I had sort of reconnected with him, he was telling me about, you know, I'm doing this, and, you know, I'm having trouble f- trying to find gigs, but I'm putting up these videos of me making music, and... When I saw him doing it, I was like, that's kind of a profound story. And when Jimmy gave me the opportunity to find me a story, that was the first thing that I thought of was Alex. So and I knew it would be a good one. And for <laughs> our listeners. Listener. For the listener, <laughs> Jimmy Bogle, the publisher of CV Independent. Mm-hmm. Just. Yeah. Jimmy Bogle from CV Independent. I think he'd be. Referencing. Yeah. He'd be a little upset if I didn't mention his full name. Yeah. I'm sure he's listening right now. Uh, <laughs> He probably is. What did you listen to growing up? Um, I started out with rock and roll. Um, I wanted a Metallica album for Christmas. I've told this story a few times. I wanted a Metallica album in fifth grade. My mom got me Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> oh. And Very similar. I mean, like, really yeah. cut from the same cloth. And when my mom said, you Metallica lo- did a cover version of Hip to be Square. No, they, they did a cover version of... of uh, it don't take money to ride this train. Power of love. It's a really, it's a different version than the one in the movie. It back sounds in the like it's a little different. The album was sports. Yes. My, she was like. One of the top selling albums yeah, of all time. of course. Yeah. But it's not my bag no. and never has been. And I actually chucked that CD at a wall one time when I got really upset and watched it shatter. And I felt so good about it. Did you keep the album cover? No. No. You, <laughs> everything went. The yeah. jewel case. Once you check the CD, there's no use no to have all right, so then you must be excited about Power Trip. Oh, yeah. But going back, I didn't get my first actual CDs that I wanted with my own money until I was about 13 or 14. And I liked Aerosmith. I liked Metallica. I finally bought that black album I always oh, nice. wanted. Um, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, I was kind of all over the place. What was your first live concert? My first live concert was Aerosmith. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty cool story. Um, 1994 in uh, what is now the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland. (laughs) By the way, this is our first guest on the podcast that when talking about the music that he grew up with, wasn't talking about vinyl. He was talking about CDs. Well, vinyl was still around. I mean, it It was kind of making a comeback, but... Who I, I kind of thought, like, who still has a record player? Right. And there weren't a lot of record players for sale at that time. No, You no. had to go to Best Buy and go in the back corner and <laughs> find one. And it was probably about two or $300. And, you know, I think my aunt had one, and it was an older one. <laughs> well, we've stepped up, because our yeah. last three guests, we were all talking about 8-tracks. So <laughs> this is definitely a move up. But you could buy albums on vinyl, but if you wanted to do a turntable, you're either a techno DJ... Or you were a serious music lover. Unlike now, turntables are for sale at Target for 75 bucks, and vinyls are at Barnes & Noble. Right, but vinyls are expensive now. They're expensive, but you have to think about how expensive they are to produce now because they just don't have the equipment to mass produce them. 
So, yeah, vinyl is one of those things that if I buy one, it's got to be something I really want. Have heard already, and it's an experience, not just putting it on for a couple songs. See, now I want to go over to your house and scratch a record just to... <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> Well, come over to my house. i got a bunch of scratch records. Every one of them is a scratch record. So, uh, obviously, having that kind of musical background and, and, and loving that stuff, like when you walked onto the site for Coachella the very first time, I mean, here you are in this incredible... You must have been pinching yourself. Yeah. And Who there was were, the first headliner that first show? Uh, Blur. Uh, I went the second weekend when Blur got switched from Stone Roses. And then um, I'm trying to think who the, the Saturday headliner was Phoenix. And the Sunday headliner was Red Hot Chili Peppers, who I've seen many times. And um, the Sunday night slot at any music festival is now called the Chili Peppers slot. Really? It's like the old reliable. You put that on and maybe some people stay. But, you know, Trent Reznor once said that, you know, he didn't want the dreaded Sunday Chili Peppers slot. Because Is that that's, really that's a thing now. Yeah, it, chili it put the Chili Peppers in on a Sunday at a festival, and yeah, it's either half the crowd's going to go home or half are going to stay. <laughs> so, as you're walking through the grounds at Coachella, uh, is there ever that part of the young Brian Blue Sky that just cannot believe? where you are yeah what's um, happened to you so many people that i have always wanted to see you know jello biafra dead kennedys was there that year lee scratch perry i mean all my musical interests were there at one spot through a weekend you know many of them that i had wanted to see and i remember watching lee scratch perry who was like a well-known reggae producer that just did weird reggae I mean, later on, I mean, he was combining dubstep and all this other stuff into his sound. And if you go back and you listen to Lee Scratch Perry, it's kind of like punk rock reggae. I mean, he would just kind of, he wouldn't really sing sometimes. It was just like he would yell and chant. And it <laughs> That's kinda, quite a mix of two genres yeah. there, yeah. But then he would do these really amazing reggae songs. I mean, he was just all over the map. And that time he was doing the dubstep combined with reggae. And I was just watching these people watch, and just when he would drop certain beats, or the DJ would drop the certain beats, and you would watch the crowd, it's like, this is unbelievable. This is the stuff I wanted to see years ago when I first heard it. Yeah. And watching Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys do his own music, and he changed the lyrics to California Uber Alice, which I thought was really strange. He, I think he changed it to like Schwarzenegger was governor or something like that, or I forget who the political figure was that he put in there. And then, you know, Moby, I've always wanted to see Moby. He didn't ever really come to Cleveland, and he did a DJ set that weekend that was phenomenal. I, when I stepped into the Sahara tent for the first time, I'm, I just looked around, like, I can't believe the level of production in here. This is insane. The Sahara tent has almost turned into, like, a, a main stage itself, hasn't it? Oh, it's been a main stage for years. For a while. And the, the fact it's gotten bigger... And it still draws a huge crowd to where you can barely get in there. It says something, but the music in there has evolved too. It's not just EDM and DJs, it's rap music. And then this past weekend, Blink-182 played in there, which was the first that I've ever seen on that stage. Watching them pull the DJ booth back so they could put Travis Barker's drums up. I mean, that you don't see that no, on that stage. No. That DJ booth just kind of stays there. Uh, had you ever seen Blink before? Yeah, I saw him in 1998, and I think Travis Barker had just joined the band. I didn't really pay attention to who was playing drums because it, 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 you'd never really pay attention to He, the he hadn't started turning upside down on the stage yet. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and then I saw him in 2000 when Bad Religion went on tour with him. And I only just went to go see Bad Religion, but my friend really was trying to coax me into staying, so he disappeared. For that, and then he reappeared when Blink-182 was over. <laughs> and I'm like... Where did you go? Oh, I got lost. I'm like, no, you didn't. You coaxed me into staying here, knowing that I, I should have left them there. <laughs> I I saw Blink 182. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago with Green Day. My sons and I were sitting on the lawn at a place called Shoreline Amphitheater up in the Bay Area, and it was really just a big weed fest on the lawn. 
And it was really kind of scary because at that point, Shoreline had issues where there was gas coming out of the lawn and sometimes it would burst into flames. So you had to be careful with that. But that sounds like a fun music It was awesome. If you were high enough, bursting flames next to you didn't really cause a major issue. The happiest person that day was the person who came out, the Kit Kat vendor, about halfway through, started walking through the lawn. And he could sell a Kit Kat for about 50 bucks by that time. Because people were looking for anything. So that's my story about Blink-182. Sounds about right. You remember the whole set? I re- no, I remembered up until we got the Kit Kat. You remembered, what they, you remembered that they played? Pretty much blanked out from that point on. It sounded like the same set, like the, the set that I saw this weekend, give or take a few of the songs that came afterward, sounded exactly almost like when I saw them in 2000. I mean, it, it, the stuff from Take Off the, Your Pants and Jacket and some of the other things. I mean, I remember... The f- Dude Ranch and Enema of the State, and it was a heavy Enema of the State set. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us a little bit it's a about... phrase you don't hear very often. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> Twice here. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about um, stories from, the, from Coachella, not just as a reporter, but just as an attendee at Coachella. Just some of the kind of crazy things you've, you've remembered or things that really stand out as... These are the stories I want to tell about Coachella. Um, well, I mean, I've met a lot of people from different parts of the world. Um, I remember the first year when Blur was playing, um, I was standing somewhere and I met this guy from, I think it was Scotland or the UK, one of the two, maybe Wales, I'm not sure where. But he had this very familiar looking face, like you would never forget it. And he was talking to me, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to watch Blur later. And he had nothing nice to say about Damon Albarn. Like, he kind of threw in some British cuss words, and, you know, it, it, I was like, okay, well, you're obviously not a fan. And he said, you need to watch The Stone Roses. And I said, well, you know, not really. I know one song, and I'm like, okay, maybe I will. And I did watch a few songs that night, but it just didn't grab me. But I think it was three or four years later, I watched the documentary on the Stone Roses, and they showed that guy waiting in line for the first gig when they had played again. So he must have flown to the U.S. just to watch the Stone Roses that night at Coachella. Wow. So he was like one of those people that follow fish around the world yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And I remember, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm trying to like really remember. I mean, I don't, I remember Mini-Me, Bern Troyer, I swear he, he was, almost ran you over, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, <laughs> I swear it was him. I mean, it, it, it. If so, I mean, I don't. I don't think there's two Vern Troyers in the world. But he was this little guy on a hover round bald. It, it, it was definitely him, and he was honking the horn and screamed at me to get out of his way. And I swear I heard that high pitched voice. I'm like, is that Mini Me? And he's driving around. He's still honking the horn, yelling at people like, move out way. <laughs> And he probably wasn't even the oddest character that you've ever seen there. No. I mean, you see all kinds of weird characters. And, you know, some of the things that I've seen, too, are not appropriate for the podcast. Oh, nothing's too inappropriate for this podcast. Well, yeah. After the murder penguin story. After the murder penguin story, yes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I'd rather not tell certain stories of what I've seen, but... I remember they keep you awake. Yeah. Kill the mics, John. I want to hear these stories. These are, these are the stories I want to hear. This is We're going to take a short break. That's right. There will be dead air for about three minutes, but it'll be maybe some other time. But I, I remember seeing one specific thing, and this lady was standing next to me like, did you just see that? And I said, yeah. And she said, I can't believe that happened. That's so gross. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can kind of get an idea of where it's going yeah, there. We'll, we'll leave that. <laughs> so do, do you ever get um, awestruck by any of the people that you see at Coachella? Obviously, there's a lot of people there that are just there to be seen. I think the one year I was awestruck was when I watched Beyonce. Really? Um, that was the greatest set that I've ever seen at a Coachella. And... I think it kind of took a lot to get me to a place to appreciate pop music, you know, especially since I, it, you know, I always saw it as like, oh, it's happy, mainstream, money-making, tons of producers, overproduced, don't write their own songs, don't really, and Beyonce, I, I, before that I had gotten to the point where I started to appreciate pop music. Some of the presentations of it, 
and it does have its place in culture. I mean, it, 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 there's something to appreciate about music that makes you feel good, but you're not disconnected from reality. And I think it kind of, it, I had to learn how to embrace music about it's okay to be happy versus being angry all the time. And I think that's, and Katy Perry was one of those people that kind of did that for me. Um, other people too, like even old crooner stuff that my grandparents listened to. I love that stuff. And watching Beyonce, it really opened my mind up to what pop music is. And I've come to appreciate it more now. And Beyonce's performance, it totally obliterated every... It, it kind of changed yeah. live music a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, watching the presentation of it, the dancing, the fact that her dancers never once stepped in front of her, and you could feel her voice coming out. I mean, she was singing. You could tell she was singing. There were some imperfections that came out that I noticed, but she was belting it. And I, again, I've never seen any performance on that scale. And that is my favorite Coachella memory was watching Beyonce. Oh, wow. That's a great story. Very cool. Yeah. Who would you, um, who have you seen at Coachella that you would have paid to see? Many people. Um, <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> Well, I would have paid to see Moby for sure if he ever came to Cleveland, but he never <laughs> did. Um, I'm trying to think. I'd pay to see Death Grips. I remember when Death Grips played the one year. They're this really obnoxious sort of punk rock rap duo. Um, I'm trying to think of some. Blur I would have definitely paid to see. Um, I've, I'd always wanted to see Blur. So when I finally got to see him, it was kind of a reward in a way. And I told Jimmy the next morning it does not feel like work to watch blur wow. and it was fun to watch them and then jimmy didn't pay him so <laughs> it wasn't oh, jimmy, no. jimmy wouldn't do that kidding. <laughs> we love jimmy uh what about this year's lineup and, and you were just talking about pop music and feel good pop music and uh like a bad bunny yeah so how does that fit into your worldview of music well the one thing that I notice every year, and Bruce sort of spoke of this before he left, you know, more international music is starting to come into the U.S. now. And when I look at the Coachella lineup, it kind of speaks as to how fast our world became interconnected. Because kids are listening to Latin music in parts of the world that I never would have imagined, or parts of the U.S., I should say, that I never would have thought. Because some of these Nortano bands that I've interviewed have said, like, we're playing states that we never even went to. And it's like white people know the words. They're kind of <laughs> surprised. Like, they're learning Spanish to sing. Yep, yep. Either that or, like, you know, their friends have turned them on to it, and they just want to go experience it. And Bad Bunny, for instance, that whole Puerto Rican thing, and then Jay Balvin with how big he got... And Bad Bunny and J Balvin were kind of intertwining with like Beyonce and all these, you know, Jennifer Lopez, and they had their mainstream moments. So to see how interconnected our world has become musically and culturally, um, the Coachella lineup reflects that. Yeah. You know, we had the per the first Palestinian Chilean singer. I forget who that was, but no one was expecting that at yeah. the Desert Sun. I mean, someone went to see it and was like, "This is incredible." I forget who wrote. I think it was Paul. Um, but he it, just reading that review, I was like, wow. You know, there were so many over the weekend. And we try to find those really diverse artists. And I remember last year watching Strome. And Strome had sold out Madison Square Garden. And I remember reading that in a New York Times article before Coachella. And when I watched him at Coachella and the way that people were responding to him, it's like, I get it. Our world's becoming more interconnected now. Well, there aren't many bigger international artists than Blackpink. Yeah. Right? And um, how was that show? Oh, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect covering a K-pop group. And yeah. Nikki Cotman, my editor, she told me a little while before, um, just remember that USA Today is going to put your coverage out there, and this is a K-pop man. No pressure or anything. <laughs> and I was just like, thanks. And I was when I was walking to go watch them, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, don't K-pop fans have like a mafia that attacks you and trolls you online? And, you know, I've been reading about uh, that's that. That's Britney Spears. Oh, <laughs> K-pop fans are, yes. you know, it, I get do. it. They're passionate about what they love. But when I watched Blackpink, it was incredible. 
a nut, it was not as good as Beyonce, but it's up there for me. Do you do you think with with the K-pop music in particular? Do you think that there's um, it, there's an international um, impact that's coming into American music where more young people are willing to accept bands from outside of the United States? I know the Latin music's always been big, and it's becoming even bigger in this area now. Particularly, everybody was really arena. mad about when those British bands came over. Yeah, we didn't really accept that sort of thing. Yeah, that's. <laughs> but but is 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 this becoming? I mean. How many bands at Coachella were non-English speaking bands this year? There's quite a few of them. Quite a few, but the one thing to remember about K-pop, they're singing in English oh, in true. South Cor- in the Korean language. Right. They usually have a sound that combines electronic music, hip-hop, rock music. They they know how to mix it. They've created this brand each each band. They have like a brand that is sort of all flavors and it's not just young women listening to their music no and it's not just like asian americans and you know i saw tons of american kids walking around with black pink t-shirts yeah. and there was this guy carrying this thing and it had the it was a pink heart that lit up and he was sitting there waving it around and you know that that has a huge following and when you see the countries that these k-pop groups are going to it's kind of an international thing now yeah and, you know, of course, Blackpink, when they were performing, they said, you know, hello, Coachella. And then they said it again in South Korean. and or, I'm sorry, the Korean language. I, I keep thinking there's no difference between. Yeah. Uh, there's a major difference between the two countries, but not the language. But hearing them say one, that. One thing they have in common. Yeah. <laughs> but hearing them say hello, Coachella in Korean and, you know, and then in English, it's it. And there were people that responded to both. and. Yeah. You, I heard that through the crowd, and I, I just said, yeah, I, I see it, what Bruce was saying about them singing in English and Korean and how that's appealing to people. Since you took the job at the, the Sun, uh, we've got an arena that has been built here. Some fantastic acts, and as we just saw uh, earlier, they're bringing in more of the large Latin acts, too, so they clearly know what their audience here in the, is in the area. But what do you see the general trend of music in Coachella Valley moving to? And do you see the arena playing a role in bringing more types of music in? Well, I think it's great for national touring acts that we have an arena. And I think that's great for the audience. But one of the things I'm really concerned about, the local bands, especially since the end of the pandemic, there's nowhere to really, there's nowhere really for them to play, and some of the, these opportunities that they used to have are gone. You like know, the, what? Well, there used to be more venues. In 2013, 2014, when I first started going to cover local music, you had the Hood Bar and Pizza, and Brandon Henderson, who was the promoter at the time, was booking, you know, these little punk rock acts that everyone remembers from the 90s, and you know, even stuff that's kind of relevant today i mean he brought a lot of that stuff but he would put local talent on the same bill i remember when jello biafra played the hood and he had all these local bands playing behind jello biafra and i'm sure for all those local bands that had to have been an incredible experience and they would feature the these bands you know regularly but lately since the pandemic eased i don't see a lot of shows coming at the hood um, you know, I don't know what's going on. I would like to know. And then, you know, we had this new venue open up in Palm Springs called Alibi. And that was going for a while, but they, she would book, or it was Elizabeth Garo, she would book local bands sometimes to open up for some of the other bands. But I, I started to notice that it wasn't really well attended. And then no one really knows what's going on with Alibi. It's closed right now. I mean, you know, I've heard rumors that it's going to reopen, and, you know, I've tried to find out myself. You know, but these local bands don't really have those opportunities anymore. The McCallum has the open call for classically trained singers or someone that has a more classical style of performing, but I'm just not noticing anything for kids that want to play rock music or, you know, like Danny Lux. It's like, where's he going to play? Yeah, where's the next Danny Lux going to perform in 
the Coachella Valley to gain prominence and, you know, sort of win over a local audience. That's interesting you say that. I think one of the things that Bruce was <clears throat> was known for was bringing a lot of that culture into the um, – in front of us yeah. so that we could see some of the culture that was outside of Coachella or things that were kind of behind the scenes a little bit. Do you feel a little responsibility to kind of keep that going up in your writing? Well, um, you know, my focus is different, but when I left CV Independent, uh, Matt King was my replacement. Matt King, I, I have to, uh, oh, Matt King is incredible because I've known him since he was a kid. I mean, th it's not too long ago that he was just a kid. I mean, he just turned 21. But he's a local musician. He plays in bands. A couple. Of, well, he was in this band, Frankie's the Floor, and then he has this new band, Matt and the Kings, and he plays in a couple of other bands as a bass player. And I'm seeing him right in CB Independent, flying that flag, like you know, supporting the local artists. And then he's putting out these record compilations with all these local bands on them. I'm proud of what he's doing. And, you know, he's continuing that legacy. And, you know, as much as Jimmy Bogle probably isn't going to be happy to hear it, you know, CV Weekly keeps the local music scene alive too. And I think that's important. Because I always said it's a good thing that CV Weekly exists and it's a good thing CV Independent exists because we're both doing the same thing. Yeah. We're promoting local bands. And... We each have our different perspectives of them. We each have our different descriptions of them. We interview them differently, but either way, they're getting out there and they're getting known. So from a competition standpoint, you know, see, it was kind of rough to compete with CV Weekly, but I respect what CV Weekly does, and I think the CV Independent and CV Weekly are the two best local publications for local bands, and I think both those publications do an excellent job. How did the pandemic impact you as a writer at the Desert Sun? It was hard because I had that seven or eight months where I got to be Bruce Fessier and have that <laughs> Bruce Fessier experience. And, you know, I was really looking forward to doing my first Coachella with the Desert Sun. I had the, you know, Kristen Sharkey, who was my editor at the time, sat down with me. She's like, let's build a calendar for 2020. And we were slowly building it and getting all these ideas of where we wanted to go. And then it turned out to be a 60 day calendar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what was hard for me was going right into that. Um, I had a couple of articles that I got to finish that were entertainment related. And then when the pandemic hit, it was like, okay, we need to find stories that are related. And I'm writing about local musicians that I know. Well, I'm kind of depressed because I can't go play music, but you know, the money isn't an issue or, I know the, a few that are they're professional musicians locally that couldn't pay their rent. And those stories were heartbreaking. And then I did a story where it was about last rites. Like, how are the priests, rabbis, and pastors doing last rites? Wow. And wow. those were difficult stories to write, but then when they all dried up, I became the guy that was tracking all the new cases, the deaths, and then I became a breaking news reporter oh for months. And breaking news, I'm still doing it now. I am not a car crash guy. I am not a, a there's a fire in a field somewhere. Every time that that happens on my watch, I'm just panicking and trying to get all the information I can, and it's still new to me. <laughs> <laughs> we had Larry, Bo Larry Bohannon, and just before he came in, he was He doing, covered a car crash. He covered a car crash. Car in the canal. Yeah. He came in. Car in the canal. We all became breaking news reporters, and we still are breaking news reporters, because our paper has changed since yeah. the pandemic. We all have to All the papers in. have changed since the pandemic, yeah. but... But it was months before I wrote an entertainment-related story, or something that wasn't a press release, and... I I felt depressed for a long time. Like, this is not what I imagined. That was a tough time. You know, we suspended production of Eye on the Desert at yeah. KBSQ because there was nothing to promote. Right. There were no events. There were no concerts. There were no... So, and I, I think, you know, there was no choice. And you had to focus on the news of the pandemic. But we then began to sort of wallow yeah. in the news of the pandemic because there, was, there wasn't any entertainment going on, no live entertainment. Right. And I, I think that was a really difficult time. 
Yeah. Uh, and particularly for people like you who make your living you know, really delving into local culture when there's a dearth of local culture, there's nothing going on. Yeah. And then you have to focus your talents on talking about how many people died today from this pandemic. It, it, it was a, a very dark time for, for journalists. Period. What was really dark was when they did give me that, you know, the, every day I had to check the count and, you know, I would see the numbers go up and then I'd see them come back down and then the deaths would go up, but the numbers were Boy, dropping. Boy, that had to kind of weigh on you after yeah, a while. Yeah, because I was sitting there paying attention to trends yeah. and I was like writing them down every day, like more people dying, cases going down, cases going up, less people dying, but it would reverse. And then when you had to break it down by city and it's like, this is just too much. And I think I went out for a week on a vacation or because we were doing furlough weeks at the time. I came back and said, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's when I remember telling Julie McKinnon, you know, I think it was around the time of Easter when Easter rolled around, like, Julie, I, I can't, I, I'm, this is just too much. And, you know, I remember we had the heart to heart about, you know, I'm not used to this. You know, this is new to me. And she understood, but, you know, a lot of us were dealing with it. And I, I started to feel for the other reporters because it's like, well, they're not used to this either. Nobody had been yeah. through it. And it's like, none of us know how to cover this. And, you know, this is all a big surprise. Yeah. And, you know, it, it weighed on all of us, too. And, you know, I sort of took a little bit of an offense every day when I would turn on my social media and you'd see those memes, you know, the media says this and, you know, all these things. But, you know, I kind of learned to tune that out. And it's like, you know, well, you know, I'm just still going to do my job and keep doing my thing. That's a really interesting thing. And I think I had talked to Bruce at this about one point where all of a sudden you, just by the nature that you work for the media, there were people that considered you an enemy. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Well, I've kind of dealt with that for a long time. Long time. Um, you know, even going back to when I first started, you know, I've, I've had critics in the local music scene, whether they're people that go to shows or, you know, they, I, I sort of refer to them as the edgelords. And, you know, <laughs> it, you just kind of learn to let it go. And you're not going to convince anyone or, you know, it's it just, you just have to let it go. And Do you just have thicker keep... skin now than you yeah. used to? Yeah. I any, mean, any of that have to do with your Buddhist background? No. no. Um, I, I abandoned my Buddhist oh, background a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you dug deep, huh? I dug very deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Buddhist background. Um, yeah, I was a Theravadan Buddhist for a while. And then I just kind of abandoned Theravadan Buddhism and just read Buddhist books and meditated and did that for 10 years, but yeah. it, it got to be, I, I just phased out of that. It's so how do you deal with it? How do you deal with the, the pressure of deadlines and, and being judged on the next thing that you do? How do you deal with that? You just deal with things one at a time. Um, you know, your deadlines and, you know, I'm not saying that they don't exist, but you have to kind of work around and do everything that you can uh, but you have to take things one thing at a time because if you start to worry about the four other things whatever you're working on at the moment is going to suffer so you kind of have to take things one thing at a time and I think that might irritate people that have worked with me that I'm very one thing at a time minded but it's the best way that I know how to do something and then when I finish I'm going to move on to that next thing and I'm going to move on to the thing after that you know I'm a very focused one thing at a time person got it multitasking is a skill that I have but it only goes so far and I think the human brain when it comes to multitasking is overwhelmed more and more every year that passes and the more culture shifts. So the tunnel vision kind of keeps the outside noise away too. Yeah. 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 That I'm, I'm not to the point where I can't multitask, but again, I notice things suffer if you just start to worry about everything else or you're trying to do multiple things at once. And, you know, I, I've, I've even heard from people that are expert multitaskers. I'm still not very good at it. And I'm like, well, I've seen what you can do when you multitask. And it's like, I'm still not very good at it. But (laughs) maybe it's that self-criticism in your ear. But I definitely know for sure if I'm worrying about five things at once, one thing's going to suffer. Have you gotten to the point of recognizing that you're pretty good at what you do? Yeah. Um, 
you know, there's a difference between confidence in what you do and, you know, sort of being egotistical about it. Yeah. I kind of just take the confidence that I know what I'm doing. I know that I do it well. And when I'm given the opportunity to focus on doing something and write a really good story, I always feel satisfied with it afterward when I read it. You know, when I'm given time to actually seek out information in a story, talk to people, find a unique angle, read it a few times. And, you know, I, I love that. And when I see it go up and I read through it, I'm like, yes, this is what I love. Do you still get any kind of a little thrill seeing your name on the byline there? Um, I think that kind of ended a long time ago. <laughs> but for the first five years I worked in journalism, I always got a thrill of seeing, you know, the paper, the finished product, you know, the monthly CV Independent. And I would go through and Jimmy would always be like, why are you reading that? You know, what's in it. And I'm like, there's something about seeing my article in print and reading it that I love. And okay. You know, he would just kind of nod at me. We would be sitting in the Ace Hotel, you know, ahead of trivia night and I'd just be reading through it. And he'd be like, you, I don't get what you're doing. We, um, we're going to be, um, with the arena and some of the other things that we're doing in this city, this valley is going to continue growing and moving into an area. Where do you see it going entertainment music-wise? Um, well, I think it could grow. I think it could grow as far as the entertainment goes. Um, will we become an Austin, Texas? Will we become a New Orleans? Probably not. But I see this becoming a destination where there is live music involved and not just a resort city, not just a golf city, but there's things to do. You can go to a concert. You can explore a little bit of a local music scene. Do you think it'll add to a more um, full-time entertainment? Yeah, I think it will. I, you know, when I see the arena and what they got planned going through the summer, there's definitely going to be some entertainment offerings that are going to draw people here. Patrick, I don't know what else to ask this gentleman. He's told us everything we need to know about Coachella and the Desert Sun. Just and enjoying you watching drilling the hell out of the guy. Yeah, I knew that this was going to be a very interesting interview for me, besides the fact that I'd heard a little bit about Brian and what his uh, upbringing was in the entertainment and writing business. Very clearly, um, everything that you're writing about is something I have an immense amount of interest in. So I apologize. I dominated the conversation here. But I was That's fascinated okay. I was by napping. this. Was it great? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. How did I sound? You sounded. I was listening to Brian. <laughs> so, Brian, what's next for you? Do you you mentioned that you wrote poetry as a younger person? Are you writing anything else? No. Do you um, have any desire to? No. And in fact, every time I tried to write some sort of like a literature or fiction literature, I'm not Todd Goldberg. I don't know how to write good. <laughs> dialogue between characters i don't know how to do any of that isn't and it a little harder though especially when i mean you are on deadline you have to write this stuff you got to turn it out there's you know yeah th there is no stopping that machine so then when you sit down to write for fun it still feels like work yeah yeah my, there's got to be a little bit of that by five o'clock sometimes especially you know i remember when the power trip announcement came out and having to jump into two or three articles about it you know the the tickets the context of what this means, you know, coming here and, you know, the initial announcement, calling people by like five o'clock, my brain was pudding. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 people don't understand that your brain after a while just says no more. And when you sit down, it's like, just, just watch television or read a, <laughs> read a novel of some kind. Is that what you do when you need to shut down? Yeah, um, I become very good in the mornings about doing a crossword puzzle just to get my brain going again. And I've been doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. And what I love about that, and I did never used to do crossword puzzles, but I love connecting a clue with a word. And even though I'm not very good at thinking of it off the bat, I'm getting better at it just by pulling up my phone and looking like, well, I've never heard that phrase before. What does that mean? And then when I see the word, I'm like, oh. And I'm starting to notice I can connect certain words to certain phrases and 
certain meanings, and it's kind of a nice little brain teaser to get going. In well, the as a writer, that's got to be a, an added skill, right? Yeah. yeah. And I start with the mini crossword, and then I move on to the full size. Are one. you doing Wordle yet? No. Oh, good. I, I've I don't never do done it. <laughs> I, I don't do anything that I don't do anything like word searches or crossword puzzles that get me social media attention i i don't i'm not into that (laughs) what about scrabble are you a scrabble player you know i I, my mom and i used to play and my mom was actually really good i was really surprised we we were a scrabble family growing up yeah and it it, it, you know it was our dad crushed us every time but it was you know you had to strive to beat him so yeah and I was never good with the letter Q, and I was never good with the letter C. <laughs> well, on that note of Scrabble, Brian, first of all, I hope we can have you on here again. I mean, th- this is one of those things where I already know that every couple of months there's going to be stuff we're going to want to be yeah. talking to you about, so I hope we can get you here again. The special power trip episode. Oh, that's going to be yeah, fantastic. We a deep dive on, but you know who else wants to do a deep dive on power trip is Mr. Skip Page. So that might be good to get these two in here together and talk about it. Skip can break some news that Brian can roll out into the desert or sun we the following day. Or just arm wrestle. <laughs> I like that, That too. would be fun, too. Brian, thank you for being here today. This has been wonderful. Patrick, we did it again. Uh, yes. Shocking. We, uh, delighted to have you. It was really actually nice to actually sit back, listen, and get to know you a little bit better. I read your stuff a lot, but we, it, you know, we operate in different but the same circles. So yeah. it's, it's always good to see people from the Prince side of things. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. I want to thank our engineer and producer, John McMullen, for helping us again. Patrick, I want to thank you for just agreeing to show up again for the Patrick and Randy podcast. But, you know, at bare minimum, I can show up. That's it. I do that best. My wife will tell you that. <laughs> Welcome we want again. to also thank Skip Page for hosting us here at Little Bar. The, the universe, center of the universe in the Coachella Valley, Little Bar in Palm Desert. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.